A.W. Tozer states, what comes into our mind when we think of God is the most important thing about us. We're all able, we, are all, we are able to extract from any man a complete answer to the question. What comes into your mind when you think of God, we might predict with certainty the spiritual future of that man. No doubt, that is a bold statement. <laughs> Again, Tozer saying, the most important thing about a person is what they think of God. Is it possible how you think of God will determine who you become? That you are a byproduct of your God picture? Is it possible one reason so many have their life out of order is because God's basic purpose for their life is out of order? From some of your perspective this morning, you may be coming in here going, God wants me to try harder. I'm just not doing enough. Some of you may be thinking, God blesses me when I'm good. Well, and he punishes me when I'm bad. Some may come in today that God is angry with them. Or God has forgotten me. You may have come in today with the type of earthly father that you have experienced may relate directly to your view of your heavenly father. We all have these ideas we tell ourselves about God and how he does or doesn't work in our lives. And out of that, I do believe, it shapes the narrative for our life. It shapes our story. But this is nothing new for humankind. <laughs> it's been going on before you got here. And for Lord Terry's, it'll be going on way after we leave. So today we start the series of the good and beautiful God. Allie showed you the book while ago, and those are for purchase out there, whether I'm assuming... If you're not able to be here on Wednesday nights with the men, uh, you still may be able to keep up with it. There, I know we've got some, a few extra books, but would love to have you be a part of that. But over these next few months, we will be diving off into this thought of the good and beautiful God. So I'm going to read this morning from Acts chapter 17. Of course, we just finished a series on Acts, as many of you know, and I'm not going to stay too camped on it today, but I think it's kind of a a good launching point for where we are today as a culture, even inside the church many times, of what's going on. And we'll just start in verse 16, Acts 17, verse 16. We're going to read through 31. It should be on the screen, but if not, or if not on your tablet or Bible that you have. So here we go. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. I'm going to stop here just a second. Remember last week we read 1 Thessalonians and talking about the church at Thessalonica. What I loved about that, then there's so many things in that passage of Scripture that we could talk about. But one of the things is that they, they, they became a model. They became influencers of all the culture. Paul says, everywhere we go, we hear about you, basically. But one of the things they did, they turned from what? Their idols. Scripture says, and they turned to an almighty God. So, just that is the launching point, if you will, for who we're trying to be here at Renovation, obviously, is our 
passage of Scripture, 1 Thessalonians, is kind of our, it's where we get our mission statement. So, verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him into a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we, know, may we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? You're bringing some strange ideals to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. And all the Athenians and the former, uh, foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the, the latest ideals. Does that sound like some people you know? Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you're ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if needing anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. I'm going to read that again. He is not served by human hands as if he needs anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth, and he marked out the appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out to him and find him. This is going to be good news for some of you. Though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. I love that. As some of your own poets have, poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are not, we're God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a date when we will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising this man he talks about from the dead. And his name is Jesus Christ, as most of you would know. If not, that's good news. Many gods, most made by hands, images, Nothing new to our culture, nothing new. We may not call it that. We may not sit around and have conversation around it, but it's sure not very far, especially from our Western world, of things that we've made into idols. And like them, they began to look at Christianity, listen to Paul, and said, okay, that's one option among all these options that are here. That's one option, and it's the way we are today in so many ways. But like for so many people today, even though they may be attending church on a regular basis, to those who never even think about it, he is this unknown God. 
Since the earliest times, mankind has been incurably religious. There is this drive in the human psyche that compels us, if you will, to seek out a higher power, a source for our existence. Why this whole thing is in motion? Why are we here at all? And I will admit, the fact that we do this does not prove that there is a God or that He can be known. Just because we, from the beginning of time, the earliest of times, that's happened, doesn't prove that there is a God. And if there is a God, it doesn't prove that He can be known. But I love what C.S. Lewis, the great English scholar and Christian philosopher, said. He points out, even though someone's hunger is not proof food exists or that a person will get a meal anytime soon, yet hunger is a powerful indicator person has a capacity to eat even if he or she dies of starvation spiritual hunger is a powerful indicator there is something beyond ourselves that we can and need to feed on we apparently have we all apparently have a built-in yearning to be more than just bodies and brains he says So the question comes as we launch into our good and beautiful God, can God be known? And if He is, what what kind of God are you seeking? What are you looking for? If you are actually on a journey right now, I'm assuming if you're in church and you're not made to be here, okay, some of you may not be seeking anything, okay, but if you are, what are you seeking? What kind of God, if you were able to paint the kind of God that you wanted and you desired the most, what would it be? Well, I want to share with you today three things that I, I hope are helpful to you. And then as we go through these next many weeks, we're going to continue to talk about attributes that we believe are of God. But the first thing I want to share with you this morning is, and there's some things that I'm convinced of, and because I'm convinced of something or like you're convinced of something doesn't mean that it's correct, but I, I hope it's helpful to you. But the first one is this. I am convinced... That God goes to great lengths to have a love relationship with you and with us and to call us to his purpose. I am convinced that God goes to great lengths to have a love relationship with each of us and then out of that love relationship call us to his great purpose. I believe God comes to us in that love relationship individually and uniquely. And it's not simply about salvation. This whole thing is not just simply about salvation. Let's get to heaven. Some of you may think it's kind of like a game between God and Satan. So, okay, if there's a a game going on here at the end of time, if there's such a thing, if I believe in the end of time, somewhere at the end of time, whoever has more in heaven, whoever has more over in hell, whatever, they win. But it's more than just getting us to heaven, which is great. But I believe God comes to us seeking a relationship. And it's unique. And it's personal. I look in Genesis chapter 3, and yes, we read Genesis 3, and we see the fall, and we see the banishment from the garden. But also what I see in Genesis chapter 3 with Adam and Eve is that God came looking for them. And I don't believe he stopped. 
I believe he continues to look for us. I believe he continues to search us out. The reason why I say I believe God goes to great lengths is because I know how to read John chapter 3, 16 and 17. For God so loved the world. Sometimes we read that, sometimes we hear that, and we've heard it so many times. We've seen it at the end zone of a football game on on a big piece of paper. We've heard it so many times that it's almost like we skip over it. He goes to great lengths to have a love relationship with you. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son that whosoever believed in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. But he did not send his Son into the world to condemn it, but to save it. Great lengths he goes to to have this relationship with us. And yeah, he'll use unique circumstances. We see it throughout Scripture. I talked to you about it on Christmas Eve a little bit, those who were here. Did he oddly see he goes some pretty strange ways to talk to people in Scripture? But many of us know he speaks to us even through creation. He speaks to us through his word. He speaks to us through circumstances. He speaks to us through people. He speaks to us through the Holy Spirit empowering, impressing on us, then empowering us to hear. But I said this, I think, Christmas Eve, and I think it's really important, or I wouldn't include it. (laughs) How God speaks is not near as important as that He speaks. God speaks to humankind, and He speaks to us, though, I believe, all the time for a purpose. Have you ever known someone who just talks, and you're not even sure they have a purpose? (laughs) They're just rattling. Our, our, our granddaughter, and I'm not picking on her right now, but our oldest granddaughter, Cameron, one of the things she used to do was she was stuttering a lot when she was starting to talk. And one of the things that was interesting about that to me was what I realized real quick, she didn't have a stutter problem. She was just trying to freeze the conversation so she could pick back up so you couldn't jump in. Now that is a three-year-old, but you know adults who live there. God speaks with a purpose. God speaks for a reason. I don't believe he stutters, and that'd be fine if he did. We'd still get it. 1990, Jan and I were in Chicago going on vacation. I worked at Alcoa or Alumax Meal Products and ran a meal there and enjoyed my work there. We were involved in the church there in Texarkana. We decided to go to Chicago for vacation that summer, we're going to go to Wrigley, Old Comiskey. It was the last year of the Old Comiskey Park. Those who know baseball know Old Comiskey Park. Uh, and then we were going to go to St. Louis and go to see the Cardinals. So we did that. We, were, we went to Wrigley, and as we were coming out of Wrigley, if you've ever been to Wrigley Field in Chicago, you know you kind of park just wherever you can park mainly, and so you walk down the street, and there's, you know, you're just in neighborhoods. I mean, basically what you are. Well, we, Jan and I saw a, a, somebody eating out of a dumpster, pulling food out of the dumpster. Now, I had lived in Dallas for four years. Many of you know I worked for Texas Instruments there in the early 80s. And I'd been around big cities, but 
I don't know, in the early 80s, I just never saw that. I never saw homeless people doing that. Never was not anything that I... And in Texarkana, we didn't see it either. But here we were in Chicago and saw somebody eating out of a dumpster. So it got our attention. But nothing that was overwhelming. We just talked about it. So the next night, I think, or maybe two nights, I don't remember what it was, then we went to Old Comiskey Park on the south side of Chicago. So we're walking out of that park uh, the, the game, after the game, and we're walking... And I was sitting in that game, just, I was amazed sitting in that old park, and you know, there's like, looked like there had been like 30 coats of paint on everything, you know, it had been around for so long that Babe Ruth played right out there in right field, you know, whatever. It was so cool. I didn't know in that moment God was about to alter our life. Jan and I walk out of that building that night, and we're walking towards our car, and we see this young man standing there, and I don't, again, living in Texarkana, we just didn't see this, but there was someone asking for, for money. It was a young, uh, a young black man who had, his, both arms were gone. He had a bucket hanging on his arm right here. He was burnt. You could tell he'd been burnt all over. His skin was, he just looked, it was just bad. But he was asking for money, and he had a bucket just hanging on his arm. So I put some money in, in the bucket and just kept walking, and I think maybe Jan did, I don't remember that part, but Jan and I just started walking, didn't say a word. We were just walking towards the car, and then we turned and looked at each other, and both of us had tears just rolling down our face. And you say, well, I've seen a lot of people like that. I, I get it, and I've seen a lot since then, not necessarily exactly like that, but obviously. But I didn't know in that moment, in summer, July of 1990, that God was going to use that moment for me to go tell my friend, Jack Martin, who was the youth pastor there in Texarkana, about... God's stirring something in us. We saw this, and somehow or another, it's, it's moving. I don't know what to do with it. He said, well, I think you need to go meet somebody. I think I need to take you to go meet somebody. And that somebody was Brother Paul, Brother Paul Holderfield Sr. Now, again, I didn't know in that moment, in the simplest of vacations, in that moment, in the presence of God that I didn't know was coming. I was thinking about Babe Ruth. I was thinking about somebody else. But in the moment, God was thinking about me. And in that moment, I was able to take a moment to great lengths, you'd say, to now change the trajectory of our life. Because out of meeting Brother Paul, many of you have heard me say this before, I'd heard the holiness message preached before, I'd heard about entire sanctification, but it wasn't until I met Paul Sr. that I realized it could be true. So it changed me not only in, in, in the midst of reaching out to those in, in dire need, but also I, I actually saw the Scripture come alive. But you don't know, do you? My greatest challenge in my walk with Christ over the years was the fact that God had a purpose for me individually. Kurt Gentry, I am calling you. If you'd asked me, back then I would have rather stayed at Alumax. I'd rather spent my 30 years with Alumax, 56 years old, retire. I had a great ministry there. It sounds crazy. But, but I had a tremendous ministry as a layman there. I'd have been a great layman for 30 years and longer. I know that. I know God would have used me in, in my family in different ways. But all I know is, I, again, I'd be starting a second career now, doing something else. But no, God, for whatever reason, was calling me for a purpose. This is what I've come to conclusion about all this.
is that God wants to get you where you need to get to more than you want to get where you need to go. He has a great purpose for you, a great hope for you. God wants you to get where you need to get to more than you want to get where you need to go. Because his plan has a great hope. His plan has a great future, and that includes you and him together and with others who are going the same direction. So again, I am convinced that God goes to great lengths to have a love relationship and to call you to his purpose. I also believe God comes to us in the simplest of places. He goes to great lengths, unique circumstances, but he does it in the simplest of places. Because it is easy to look in Scripture and see from Balaam and the donkey, you can see the parting of the Red Sea, you can see the miracles of Jesus, you can see uh, Daniel in the lion's den, you can see all these circumstances where God was getting attention, and you go, well, sure. If I had that, if I had one of those moments, then okay. But I love what he did with Elijah. In 1 Kings 19, he wasn't in the earthquake. He wasn't in the strong wind. He wasn't in the fire. But Scripture says he was in the whisper. That God came to him in a whisper. John Ortberg says in his book, uh, God is closer than you think. He says, once you see God in an ordinary moment, at an ordinary place, then you never know where he'll show up next. He said, spiritual growth in a sense, it's simply increasing our capacity to experience the presence of God. I think somebody heard somebody say, to be a great missionary is to have great eyesight that you begin to recognize God and help people identify with a God that's always been there with them. Because we don't take God anywhere. He's really heavy. <laughs> But when we begin to recognize God everywhere, it changes everything. Can I experience God in the interruptions? We must leave margin in our lives for God to interrupt our lives. I believe God, when we begin to search after Him and walk in the presence of God and look for His movement and His fingerprints, He'll be crossing our paths. He'll be canceling appointments. Can I experience God in taking out the trash and seeing my neighbor? Can I experience God in cleaning up the vomit of my children? Can I experience God? Can I experience God in those moments to the simplest of places? Can I experience God in the most devastating moments? Psalm 20, uh, 23 says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Can we embrace our circumstances no matter how tragic they may seem and act for the advancement of the kingdom? 
And we act in such a way that it's unexplainable apart from Christ. People don't understand how we can continue to move forward, but we move forward unexplainable apart from Him. I love what Dallas Willard says. He says, there's a divine drama going on around you and, I, around you and I, and our participation in it is critical. We are no longer spectators, but are caught up in this vivid and eternal drama in which we play in an essential role. You are valuable. You matter in all this. And for some reason, some of you think your hope and your future and your purpose has been taken out either by your choice or by someone else. I want to come today to encourage you. It hasn't been taken. God still has a great plan for you. Still a great hope. Still a great future. You matter in all this. And he wants to use you in the simplest places. And he may put you on big stages too. I don't know. But I do want to admit, there is no formula for me for God to speak to me. (laughs) Because Jesus talks about in John chapter 3 that the wind blows where it blows. Talking about the Holy Spirit, it blows as it sees fit. All I want to do is be able to recognize it when it's blowing, when it's speaking, when he's showing me, when he's moving me. In the simplest of places to the places of great lengths he goes to. To draw me in. The last one I would just say is this. God develops our character to match his purpose. He writes our story. I love what Paul says here. He says, in the past God overlooked such ignorance. And now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And I won't get down too deep into the repentance there, but it means to return to, to Shuba, to return back to your original state, to return back to what we were designed to be. To come back. Come back to what I, my purpose for you. God's greatest task, I think, for all of us, that sure includes me, is to get me adjusted to him and what he's trying to do. I believe this, like Henry Blackaby says in his book, Experiencing God, talking about crisis of belief. When God invites you, when God speaks to you, there's these moments of crisis of belief where moments I'm going to go, do I trust God or do I not trust God? Am I going to follow after what he's saying or am I going to stay right where I am? Because most of us, our tendency, if we could go follow God just by obedience, and we need obedience, What happens many times in obedience is is that God has to adjust us to be able to walk it out. Something has to change in us. It begins to change our lives. It begins to change the way we think about things. And it's hard, so we stop. We've used this slide many times, the Barna slide, about 10 steps of a journey. And one of the challenges we have in this, for all of us, and if Barna's right in his study, George Barna is a Christian, uh, he does a lot of research, but... One of the things he talks about is in in, in 15,000 Americans of all backgrounds. Look at number seven. They experience this personal brokenness, and I would even slide in here this crisis of belief, how we're going to follow the adjustment God's wanting us to make in our lives to follow after him, to begin to hear his story about our lives instead of us continue to write our story. Or we hear a new story about him. But it's there that we lock up. It's there that we stop. We choose not to surrender. And fully submit to God. And Barnum would say, 
if we don't allow their personal brokenness and God to begin to continue to work on us no matter how long you've been following Christ, we begin to work our way back and most people stop at number five. It's just easier to be a part of a church and be a part of the activities than to adjust our lives to what God's trying to do in our life. Ortberg goes on to say, he says, what we say, hear, or imagine ultimately makes our minds receptive or deaf towards the small voice of God. And Romans 12, 2 says, we are transformed by the renewing of our mind, the way we think, Paul writes in Romans. And there's this story we've been telling ourselves about God for so long. I hope it's a healthy story. I hope it's one that gives you life and gives you movement and gives you hope but I realize that's not everybody's story and we as human beings like to tell stories that's how we really relate to things by telling the story we put everything into the story even if we have the wrong facts we like to put things into the story it's in Jesus used stories and parables to help us move forward for instance if we understood that God hates sin we do but we don't look at God hating sin because we think God hates sin because he wants to bring wrath on us we, won't, he, we believe God wants to punish us we believe God that somehow or another he's a killjoy, he doesn't want us to have fun so we, he stomps out sin but what if you believed he hates sin because it hurts his children it hurts his children That's a different narrative for many of you. See, he fully understands, if he is who I believe he is, he fully understands the weight of sin. He realized that sin separates you from his great purpose. It separates you from him. It separates you from your great purpose. It separates you from the relationships that you be, should be having that are healthy and whole. It's separating you. And he realizes left there long enough in separation, it leads to isolation. And isolation left long enough leads to devastation. That's what sin does. God knows that. What if God's plan for you is for a great hope and a great future? A great purpose uniquely for you? His plan doesn't isolate you. It reconciles you to Him and to His plan. It doesn't bring devastation. It brings restoration. And I am convinced with all my heart that is his narrative for us. His desire for us is to bring us back to him and to begin to restore what we were designed to be. A renovation. We are convinced, or at least I am convinced, I hope we are, that what we think of God and where we end up here is really the beginning point of really transformation and begin to understand all this. And we try to start where people are. Many of you have seen this slide before, the five C's. Again, I'm not going to get deep into the details here. But we want to know where people are. Do you come today that you're ignorant of God, you're indifferent to God, or you're combative towards God? Do you come today just asking, is it true? And if it is true, is it true for me? And if it is true for me, is it true for me all the time? Or is it conditional? Because it gives us a narrative of who we believe God is.
Maybe we're convinced, but we've gotten real comfortable. We're, we're at peace. We're, we need to be comfortable in our walk with Christ. But somehow we've gotten complacent because all the kind of God we want is, you don't ask anything from me, God. You just take care of things. So we become complacent. If not careful, we're there because we're capped some way spiritually because we're not willing to move through. We're not willing to go through step seven, as Barna would say. And then we see those who become convicted, are, they begin to look at things and go, and sin is unacceptable in my life. There's a stirring and an awakening, which has happened to many of you right now in your life. Right now, I believe God is stirring and an awakening. Many of you, you begin to engage it. You begin to step towards it. You don't, you don't continue to say, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll do it the next day. No, you begin to engage it right now. Then the last one is, and it comes out of Second uh, Corinthians 10 or 5, excuse me, but we are compelled by Christ's love. We are compelled and we become focused and intentional. We become this holy discontent where God is stirring and breaking our heart about something that he wants. It's on his heart and he begins to direct us and our purpose and our life begins to get much clearer and we begin to say, not on my watch. It's not happening on my watch. I appreciate right now that we have our students are going through Alpha uh, Student uh, uh, Edition on Wednesday nights. I believe it's a great place to find out where they are what they believe about God. It's an awesome study, and we're doing that through the next meeting. If you've got teens, it would be a great time to come and step into that because, again, those fundamentals of who God is, who Christ is, and the history of it, it's awesome. So those are things that we're looking at, going, how do we help people where they are? I can't make you get here, but I can start where you are. Sometimes we have to figure that out, don't we, and identify that. God adjusts us. God asks us to move. In 1986, when I came to know Christ, I had no idea what that meant. As many of you know, I didn't know what the first book of the Bible was when I gave my life to Christ. I was not a churchgoer until that time right before that. Did I know in the next few years? Did, did I know? No, I didn't. I did not know that I'd be teaching Sunday school, be a board member, being called to preach, uh, end up being a youth leader, and still working at Alumax as a layman. I was satisfied being a layman from now on. But God had different plans. And yeah, I was there three days a week, four days a week at church, whatever it was, still worked all the hours. But I had to not only change my character, God began to make adjustments to who I was. I had to make adjustments to my calendar. I had to make adjustments to my pocketbook. I had to start making adjustments in all kinds of different places, but it was for his purpose. And I began to listen to him in a different way. But as we read today, as Paul, the people of Athens, says God is not far from any of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. I believe God, you sometimes say, well, where was God during this? Where was God during that? I believe God is where he's always been. He's been searching after you. He's been coming after you. He's been longing for that relationship with you. I believe God's been trying to connect to you way before you ever pondered his existence. I'm going to ask Josiah and them to come up, and we're going to close Today. Today, if you hear my voice, Hebrews says, do not harden your heart. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day. You know, so many things we do in life, 
we keep saying, well, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll start next week. I'll start tomorrow. I mean, well, it could be dieting. It could be eating healthier. It could be your finances. It could be a relationship that you need to correct, at least try to reconcile. It could be any of those things. It also could be the experiencing the presence of an almighty God. Tomorrow. I read a sign years ago in my favorite uh, Mexican restaurant in Texarkana, uh, El Chico's. So if you're ever through Texarkana, stop at El Chico's. They had a sign written in English on the wall saying, it says, Minana. It says, Minana does not mean tomorrow. It means just not today. <laughs> I thought that was an interesting... I thought that's how people kind of look at their spiritual life, isn't it? I'm not going to start tomorrow. I'm just not going to do it today and I'm not making any promises, God. So you think that's your disclaimer to God. Some of you are having an awakening. God has put a thirst in you with no drink inside. I love this out of a song somewhere I heard. And you will never quench that thirst. Never in my opinion until you follow after him and begin to follow after his plan and his hope and the relationship with him through his eyes the greatest moment of your life and my life is right now it's not five minutes ago because five minutes ago is not coming back 20 years ago oh man that was a great moment yeah but it's not coming back You're not assured of tomorrow, but you do have a choice right now to invite an almighty God to show his realness presence to you. Today, now is the greatest moment. Are you looking for a God that is a good, a, a good option during a time of crisis? Are you looking for a God that will protect you and look out for you but ask nothing from you? Or are you looking for a God that takes joy and invites you into this great journey? And yes, it includes suffering and celebration. Yes, it includes the mountaintop, and yes, it includes the darkest valley. But when it comes to the narrative of the story of God, who is good and trustworthy and generous and loving and holy and self-sacrificing and transformative and has a great plan for your life, it changes everything. If the latter is your desire, we hope the next few months will be beneficial and transformative for your life. We're going to do our best to bring it. But we ask you to invite God every day. Sure, I have sensed the presence of God on a garbage dump in Reynosa, Mexico with a bunch of teenagers. Sure, I have. And in Marminia or wherever it is around the world, and yes, it Ground Zero or Friendly Chapel, sure I have. But also in hospital rooms, also with my children at night, praying over them. Yes, in my recliner even, or in my, in my favorite place out in nature. Yes, I've sensed the presence of God there, but that was then. I've got to have His presence today. My very existence in my life, my very life, counts on the fact that God's presence can be real. I love what Moses says in number six, and most of you know it. May the Lord bless you and keep you.
and let have his face shine upon you. I want to be where God's face is shining on me. That means I may have to fight through a lot of mess because I believe there is a war going on to keep us from getting there. But I want his face shining on me.